Thank you for joining us for the lessons from First Naz podcast. Abraham was, humanly speaking, the father of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Clearly, God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. So the promise is received by faith. It is given as a free gift, and we are all certain to receive it. Whether or not we live according to the law of Moses, if we have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham is the father of all who believe. That is what the scriptures mean when God told him, I have made you the father of many nations. This happened because Abraham believed in God who brings the dead back to life and who creates new things out of nothing. Even when there are no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and in this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded for our benefit too, assuring us that God will also count us as righteous if we believe in him, the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. This is the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 4. 
it, it could be a bit of a, a digression in the argument that Paul's making. You know, he's been talking about, leading up to the gospel all this time, he's been talking about our need for the gospel, our need for the good news, the good news, and he's been talking about it as if he's getting ready to unpack it, but he hasn't started really unpacking it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he's talking about Abraham. And Abraham, like, why Abraham? And, and what's this, I mean... What's going on? And, and I, am, I am just intrigued. I'm intrigued by the way that Paul uses the Old Testament in the book of Romans. Because at the very beginning of the book of Romans, you'll remember that, that Paul talks about how this is good news. The good news is for the Gentiles. Uh, and he's preached it among other Gentiles. And these are the Gentiles in Rome that the good news is for. And so Paul is writing to a church and writing to an audience that he believes is mostly Gentile people. And so the, these Gentile people, Paul, Paul uses the Old Testament to make an argument and, and to inform and teach these Gentile people. And it just, it intrigues me. It intrigues me that Paul would assume that the Gentile Christians in Rome are familiar enough with Abraham that he's able to make reference to Abraham's story without telling the whole thing, right? Paul doesn't go into a lot of details about Abraham, he, but he pulls from all over the life of Abraham in chapter 4 to talk about Abraham's faith and to talk about Abraham's life. And he talks about Abraham in a way that assumes that his readers know who Abraham is, and very similarly, in, in the middle of chapter 3 in the book of Romans, he quotes from the Old Testament, just like boom, 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 number of, I, I called it his ode to sin in, in chapter, chapter 3, these, all these passages from the Old Testament that talk about the power of sin in the lives of humans. And, and Paul is, is assuming that Gentiles, people who didn't grow up with the Old Testament, will find the Old Testament to be authoritative. And so that gives us a hint. That's just like if we're reading between the lines here, this gives us a hint of how early Christians formed Gentile believers. Because a lot of the early Christians were Jews from their birth and had the Old Testament as a part of their lives from the beginning of their lives. But Paul, Paul is, is pointing out that even for those who didn't grow up with the Old Testament as a part of their regular rhythms, as a part of their lives, those early Christians relied on the Old Testament as authoritative for them. They taught the stories of the Old Testament. They taught the Psalms. They, they taught the prophets. And so this is just like, uh, this, is bonus. this is bonus information for us right here. This is bonus information that we too, we can't ignore the Old Testament. As Christians, maybe it's tempting to believe that the Bible begins at the book of Matthew and to focus on, on only the New Testament. Paul, Paul's writings challenge us with that thought. Paul's writings challenge us to dig into the Old Testament and, and recognize the authority of the Old Testament. So, as Paul talks about Abraham in this letter, his, his focus is on a quote that comes from early in the life of Abraham. It comes from Genesis chapter 15. You're welcome to, to fact check Paul here, but it's all there. He does a good job. Uh, he, he, the, the quote is found in Romans chapter 4 verse 3, and the quote that Paul is going to unpack throughout the rest of this chapter is that Abraham believed God 
and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And it's, it, that is, that's it. That's what Paul wants you to understand and, and know from Romans chapter 4. He, he wanted you to get through this, this whole talk that he's going to give about Abraham. And all he wants you to know is Abraham believed in God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. That's it. We can go. Amen. Be blessed. Okay, I'll keep preaching. Um, the, uh, this, Abraham, Abraham is the prototypical perfect Jew according to, to people of Paul's age. When, when, when Paul was growing up, he heard stories about Abraham, and Abraham was, was the absolute best believer in God that ever existed. And, and so people believed that Abraham obeyed, obeyed the law of God as it's, as it's revealed in the Old Testament. But Abraham lived like 500 years before any of the Old Testament law was actually written down. And, and so people believe that even though he wasn't privy to the written law of God, Abraham perfectly followed everything that God had written. And, and the Jews in the first century, they said, and that is why Abraham was righteous, was because he perfectly followed the law of God. Now, imagine we didn't have our, Old our New Testament. Imagine we didn't have the book of Romans. We, we might be inclined to say, Maybe, maybe, maybe that's why God thought Abraham was righteous. But Paul comes and he says, no, 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 no. It is not because of his perfect following of the Old Testament law that, that God counted Abraham as righteous. It was because he had faith. It was simply because he had faith. And Abraham is, is just a spectacular character in, in, the, law, in the mind of, of Paul. And so this morning, I'm just going to, to with Paul, try to unpack this, this phrase from, from Romans 4.3, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. And I want to key in first on what, what this, this idea of righteousness is that Paul is talking about. Righteousness is talked a lot about in the, in the Bible. We, you've probably sat through dozens of sermons that have tried to explain what righteousness means when we read about righteousness in the Bible. I know I've only been here preaching for about 20 months, and I've already used my favorite righteousness illustration, which is the righteous mower. You might not remember it because I've only used it once, but you'll get used to it. The righteous mower is righteous because it mows the lawn perfectly, right? It does what it is intended to do. So a, a lawnmower that is righteous is not righteous when it comes to trimming your hair, it doesn't do it. You can't, I mean, it's dangerous. Don't try. It is not a righteous hair clipper. But the, but the righteous mower is, is righteous because it does exactly what it is intended to do. Now, we maybe have a hard time with the idea of righteousness in the church because righteousness is often first and foremost a characteristic of God. So God does exactly what God is intended to do. God is love. God loves perfectly. There is no better illustration than love, uh, of love than God. God is, is a perfect lover. God is perfectly just. 
God, God is, is perfectly patient. There, the, this idea of God's justice uh, being perfect is a little, is a little frustrating sometimes because life isn't fair. And sometimes as humans, we equate the unfairness with, of, of life and, and we say, because life isn't fair, then God must not be just. But to be God is to be perfectly just. And, and so uh, this, is a, this is kind of a difficult idea for us um, to understand that, that God, by, by God's nature, is always just, but God does not protect us from the unfairness of life. God does not stop unfair things from happening in this world. And, and so God, God's love means that he perfectly is willing, if we're willing to accept it, he is perfectly willing to sustain us through all things. He's perfectly willing to walk with us in his kindness through even the most unjust of experiences. But God is just and good, and when we don't understand God's goodness and God's justice, it's our perception that's wrong. It's not God. So as humans, we struggle to understand with, with how this like perfect righteous, which is like God's justice, right? God's goodness, that, that righteousness. How could that possibly be applied to human beings? That's a difficult thing for, for us as people who recognize, like when we look in the mirror, we recognize <laughs> how far we have to go in terms of, of attaining God's perfect righteousness, we, we know that we haven't quite made it yet. And so what does it mean for righteousness to be attributed to, to person? And righteousness is often equated with virtue, right? We, I, I think we think when we read Romans and, and God, or Paul talks about righteousness being attributed to people, people are right, we, we think of it in terms of virtue. So we think that Maybe Abraham was really virtuous, and that's why God counted him as, as righteous. And through the Old Testament, we see righteousness equated with virtue quite frequently. And, and Paul grew up understanding righteousness as, as virtue and as fulfilling the Old Testament law. Paul, when he talks about himself in, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul recounts his credentials as someone who is capable of preaching the message of Jesus. And there were people in the church in Philippi who, who were saying, Paul is not a good teacher of, of Jesus because he's not a very good Jewish person, because he's telling people that they can be Christians without being circumcised. And Paul says, it's, I, I'm, I'm actually a pretty good, I have pretty good credentials when it comes to being a, a Jewish believer. He says in, in uh, Philippians 3, 6, as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul, Paul said that he was perfectly righteous because he was so good at obeying the law. He was able to do it. And, and so Paul, Paul believed that it was obedience to the law, to the written law, that made someone righteous in God's sight. And so imagine this is amazing to me about the Apostle Paul. He grew up believing that, knowing that someone was righteous and knowing that he personally was righteous because of his good conduct. He had, he had arranged his life so that he could obey the law 
really, really well, well enough to be considered righteous by God. And, and then he encountered Jesus, and, and he, his whole world changed, and he goes all the way back to his understanding of the book of Genesis, like the first book in, in his faith. He goes back to the very beginning, and he reinterprets everything he had believed since, since he was a child to incorporate Jesus into his belief system. That's pretty amazing. May we be so open and humble about what we believe that Jesus could totally transform everything we've ever believed because we encountered him so incredibly. But the righteousness that Paul, Paul is talking about here isn't just about, about obeying so that God, uh, God counts us as righteous. Abraham, Abraham shows us that it's just in believing and when we look at Genesis chapter 15, we, we see the story where, where Abraham is counted as righteous. And the story goes this way. Abraham is, is kind of glum. He has come, he's been called out of his father's house into this land of Canaan, this beautiful, fertile land, this beautiful area. There's other people there, but his, his household is thriving. He's, he's getting more sheep and goats than he knows what to do with. Uh, his, his nephew Lot came along, and they had to separate and go separate ways because they had so many, many flocks and animals that they couldn't all survive in close proximity because they had so many they needed to go find, find pastures of their own. He's being blessed in all of these incredible ways, but it, it, at the beginning of, of Genesis chapter 15, Abraham finds himself sulking. And he's sulking because he doesn't have any children of his own. And one of, his, one of his servants is going to inherit all that he has. And God comes to Abraham and uh, says, Abraham, I'm sorry that you're, you're sulking. <laughs> how about this? Uh, how about you go outside, and it must have been nighttime. Why don't you go outside and you look at the stars? And Abraham, why don't you count them if you can? If you can count them, that's how, many, that's how many children, how many descendants you will have. As many as the stars are. And then it's in, in verse 6. It's immediately after that promise is made. Immediately. Nothing has changed. Abraham, 30 seconds ago, was sulking that his servant was going to be his, his heir. Nothing has changed, but immediately after hearing that promise, we read, Abraham believed the Lord, Abram, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Remember what righteousness is? Righteousness is doing exactly what you were created to do. Abraham was created to believe the promise that God had given him. That's it. Abraham wasn't righteous because he fulfilled the law. He wasn't righteous because he tithed his income. Oh, he did. He wasn't righteous because he was generous with others, though he was. He wasn't righteous because he prayed frequently, though he did. He was righteous because he believed the promise that God created him to believe. That's it. 
That was God's expectation. The expectation of God. The expectation of God for Abraham was to believe the promise that God had given him. Going back to, to Romans 4, though, Paul uses this kind of interesting, interesting language in the, in the New Living Translation that I like. It says God counted him as righteous. In other translations, it talks about God crediting him as righteous or crediting his faith as righteousness. What, and, and it's just, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by this because Paul gives a little insight in the idea of counting him as righteous in verse 4. In verse 4, Paul, Paul says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. Paul is contrasting here wages with a gift. Aren't gifts way more fun than wages? <laughs> wages are great. Gifts are free. <laughs> and, uh, and so he, he says, he's specifically saying that Abraham did not earn the gift of righteousness. Uh, being righteous was credited to him. It was a credit to his account. And that is to say that it's when we're in the mindset that following rules is the, the way we become righteous, it's easy to make faith a rule. It's easy to, to turn this idea of having faith into like the, the work we do. All of a sudden, instead of, instead of just accepting a, a promise, it becomes work to accept a promise. And, and we have to work up in ourselves as much faith as we can. We fight to have faith. Paul says, Abraham looked up at the stars. He heard God say, if you can count all those, that's, a, that's as, many stars, as many descendants as you'll have. And Abraham simply believed it. And his belief, it was just simple belief. It wasn't like, okay, I, I really have to try hard to believe. It was just simply, simply believing. And, and the Lord counted it to him as, as righteousness. It was a gift. It was a gift counted in his favor. He wasn't deserving in any way. It was a credit to his account. Nothing he did except for look up and say, hmm, yeah, okay, God, you can do that. You can do that. Even though I don't have any kids right now, you can do that, God. As, as Paul contrasts wages with, with something that's given to us in the context of the book of Romans, I can't help but hear what Paul says about wages. Like the most, the most famous thing that Paul says about wages in, in the book of Romans, some of you are already quoting it, Chapter 6, verse 23, everybody all at once, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. Very well. Uh, so <laughs> Paul, Paul is uh, free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, I, I absolutely love this contrast. Paul, in, in chapter 4, he starts talking about wages. Then the next time he talks about wages in the book of Romans is, is the wages of sin, which are death. Wages are something you earn. 
as human beings, we are born to work for sin. We work. We go to, we, we punch the time clock day in and day out for sin. We, we, uh, we sin as if it is our job. Uh, remember that Paul, I've been using Romans chapter 1 as kind of a reference for how Paul talks about sin and how Paul defines sin in this book. He, he talks about how God has revealed his goodness in creation and we have chosen to exchange the goodness of God for other things. We have looked to idols, we have looked to anything that's not God in order to, to try to find the hope and peace and salvation that God offers. We create idols. We do it out of everything. We think that anything other than God is saving us right at this moment. Uh, and, we, and we take the good love that God has put in this world and, and we twist it and we become envious and selfish and unfaithful and untruthful. And Paul, Paul will go on and he'll say, sin pays. Sin pays. You just won't like the compensation. It's death. It's not a good, it's not a good exchange. And so as Paul is describing the free gift as compared to the wages of someone who earns them, he talks about what this free gift looks like. And in, in verse 5, he says that it comes from the God who forgives sinners. In verse 7, he, he says that sin is being put out of sight. In verse 8, he talks about the Lord clearing our record of sin. And God's free gift ends up being enough to cover the debt that we accrue as we, as we sin as if it were our job. And I've been thinking about this, like this is an incredible image, that God gives us something. We work and earn a debt. <laughs> and, and God gives us more than we need to cover the debt that we have worked ourselves into. You know, like uh, through creative financial managing, I've managed to get myself in great debt. Like God, God has come and blessed us. I, I was thinking about this, like if, if you work at one of the manufacturing uh, places in, in the valley, like you work for a, a, an agreed upon wage, like you have, you have an agreement with your employer and, and they pay you a wage, I was thinking, like, what if, imagine if at the end of the pay period, instead of receiving your agreed-upon wage with your company, you receive the CEO's agreed-upon wage. I did some looking, one of our, I won't say which one, one of our local manufacturing uh, companies, the, uh, the CEO uh, of that company, his, his, the ratio of his wage to the median salary in the company is one to 187. So for every dollar that the median earner earns in the company, the CEO makes 187 bucks. Uh, so if you traded wages with the, with the CEO for a month, uh, you would receive, if you get paid monthly, you would receive 15 and a half years worth of pay in one month. Um, can you imagine, like, what would be, what would you do differently <laughs> if one month it came in as 15 and a half years worth of income? Uh, it would be different. 
it would be different for that month, right? And, and like, as humans, that's kind of like a fun little thing to think about. It, it puts a smile on pretty much every face in here because you think, mm, wow, that'd kind of be incredible. We're thinking, this, this comparison is receiving a good thing, the wage you have agreed upon, which is a good thing. Re- receiving that versus receiving 187 times that. The exchange that God is offering to make with us is that we have put ourselves in debt, and we are on the verge of death. The, the work we are doing in this life is leading us literally to death. And when we are willing to believe the promise that God has for us, he doesn't just give us a nicer death. He gives us life. He gives us life abundantly. It's a pretty good trade. And so Paul, Paul is, is hammering home this idea, and the majority of what Paul focuses on is not righteousness. He talks about righteousness a lot, but he never really explains it. And he talks about this idea of it being a gift and crediting, but he doesn't talk about that a lot. What Paul talks about a lot is Abraham's faith, because what, what Paul is most interested in is the nature and timing of Abraham's faith. In Genesis 15, that's, that's pretty early in the story of Abraham. And Abraham had, had been sulking, and he looked up at the stars, and he received the promise, and he believed. And then a little bit later in Genesis 15, God promised that his descendants would live in the land of Canaan. And, and then in Genesis 16, Abraham, believing the promise that God has made that he would have descendants, takes matters into his own hands. And so rather than, well, seeing that Sarah, his wife, is not having any children, he, he believes that God could honor the promise to give him lots of descendants if he had a child with Sarah's servant. And so he has a child with Sarah's servant. In chapter 17, God calls Abraham to be, to be circumcised uh, as a sign of his agreement. Paul says circumcision was never, never about making him righteousness. It was about him showing that he already had faith. And in that agreement, Paul says, and it wasn't the, the child that you had with the servant that's going to give you your descendants. You're going to have your own children. And so in chapter 18, the promise is repeated and clarified. And Sarah herself hears the promise and she laughs out loud at the promise. She is not particularly righteous in that moment. She does not believe uh, like she's supposed to. In Genesis chapter 20, then Abraham lies about Sarah being his wife. He says that she is his sister because he's afraid he's going to get beat up and she's going to get taken. And, uh, and she does get taken and then it's a whole mess. Uh, and then in Genesis chapter 21, uh, it begins with, the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he promised. And Isaac is born. And the Lord is faithful to, to his promise. In chapter 22, though, the Lord asks Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And Abraham continues to believe the promise. He continues to believe that God can give him the descendants that he has promised, even if he kills the boy that is the ostensible means of God's providing those descendants. And so he takes 
Isaac up on top of the mountain, and he is poised and ready to offer the boy as a sacrifice before the Lord says, stop. And so Abraham's faith was a journey. It was a journey. He wrings his hands and worries about it. He doesn't always perfectly behave. He doesn't always do exactly what God would probably wish he did. He makes mistakes. He, he tries to force God's hand. He tries to do God's job for him by, by having a child through the servant. And, and so this is like Paul's best example of faith. Paul's best example of faith is, is hand-wringing, is worrying that God's not going to always come through. God's best example of faith has a wife that laughs at the promise being made that he's believing. Abraham has serious questions, but he's willing to believe the promise. Even in spite of his serious questions and wonders, he's willing to believe the promise, and he never lets go of believing the promise. And Paul describes his faith journey throughout Romans 4. He, he says Abraham's faith never wavered. He believed that promise. He didn't always do it well. He didn't always do it properly, but he believed the promise. Abraham's faith grew stronger and stronger. And in verse 18 is maybe like my favorite statement of this, that even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Some of us can identify with that, the first part of that sentence. Right now, even when there's no reason for hope. At the very end of the chapter, Paul, Paul talks about what our faith is supposed to be in. Uh, the last couple of verses, Paul turns the corner to talk about Jesus. He, he says that our faith is in the one who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. And in the last verse, he says, And Jesus was handed over to die because of our sin, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. When we look at the example of Abraham, we are called to believe that God would do what God has said. And that's all. We're called to do, to believe that God would do what God has said. God has promised through Jesus to forgive us. God has raised Jesus from the dead. In order for us to be counted as righteous, we simply believe the promise. Even when, when it looks like there's no reason for hope, we are called to believe. Even when the promise seems absurd, we are called to believe. We saw an, an amazing example of, of belief in what God could do in spite of the circumstances at Craters of the Moon. It's all rocks. It's just rocks. It's black. And the, we, we were driving up, and I saw, like, every once in a while there'd be a tree, a pine tree. I thought they were white pines because they're kind of gnarled like white pines can be. And, and then as we got in and did, like, some of the ranger stuff, we learned they're called limber pines. Uh, they're, they're a different variety of pine tree. Limber pines. In Craters of the Moon, the, it's, it's high elevation, and so it's lots of wind, 
And it's, you know, it's southern Idaho. It's just flat. It's just, Idaho's a beautiful state. It's just flat. Uh, and, uh, and the wind blows, and they get really harsh winters, you know, cold, cold, cold winters, 6,000 feet of elevation, cold winters. And then in the summer, the sun just bakes down that black rock. Like, uh, the rock can be up over 150 degrees uh, Fahrenheit in the, in the baking sun of the summer. Meanwhile, the limber pine is ever casting out its seeds. And God has designed these little seeds to believe that they could become trees. And so they scatter out, and these little seeds, they find, they find cracks where, where enough water collects that they can germinate. And they find the little places where enough dust has blown in that they could start to form some roots. And those little pines, they just believe what God has put in their hearts. And, and they, they are designed by God to, when the wind comes, they're limber. They bend and they don't break. And they're hardy enough to handle the, the harsh winters. And, and they're drought resistant. They can, they can deal with the barely any rain that comes to craters of the moon. And God's designed them to, to withstand that 150 degree baking dirt on their roots. They, they've received the instructions from God and they've believed that they could make a tree. Our instruction isn't to make ourselves righteous. Our instruction is not to, to become the people that we believe God is calling us to be. Our, belief, our, our instruction, our mandate, the thing that God has taken us out of the tent in the middle of the night to explain is that God has called us to believe in him, to simply believe in the power of Jesus. And he's promised us, he, he's called us, and, and he's, he's called us to trust the promise, even, even when the draw of sin seems unbearable and we, we seem drawn back to the same thing over and over, we're called to believe the promise that God could do something in our lives. To trust the promise, even when the defeats outweigh the victories, to continue to believe that God could make something out of us. To trust the promise when, when our inclinations keep turning us away from God's good plan and toward whatever else it may be. And so will you believe the promise? Will you believe the promise? Will, will, you, will you just take hold that God has called you and, and has promised that, that he will make more out of your life than you could ever ask or imagine. Would you just believe that promise? Would you believe the promise that God has called you to forgive you of whatever it is and to give you victory over the addiction that keeps drawing you back to it? Would you be, just believe the promise? Believe the promise that, that God has called you to live a life full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And even though you feel so inclined to everything that is against those things, that's the promise God has made. And if you simply believe the promise, that's all that God asks. Just believe the promise. Just believe, just have faith that, that God could do with you what God wants done in this world. Because that's the promise that God has made. And so this morning, I, I just invite you to, to take hold of the promise, to believe the promise. 
the, the first belief in the promise is what we call salvation. To believe that God could forgive you. And, and so this morning, if, if you're not sure if you've believed once, I'd invite you to believe it. Just believe it once, that God could forgive you, that God could, could set you on the right path. And, and so this morning, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that you would believe the promise that God has, has given, you, given us, given you. Uh, as we pray, the altar's always open. You're always welcome to step forward and, and make this a place where you say, yes, I believe the promise. Whatever the promise is that you're taking hold of, I, I'd invite you to, to do that. There's nothing magical about this place. You can pray that same prayer right where you are, but I just invite you to pray and accept and believe the promise. Believe the promise that God has, has your best interests in mind, that God wants to do something great with you. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you as people who, who need, to, need a special touch from you in order to just even believe that you could do something with us. We, we come to you as people who have for so long We have for so long believed what our hearts tell us. To believe the lies that, that our minds repeat over and over again. That it becomes difficult for us, Lord, to simply believe that you could do something more with us. And so, Lord, this morning, I... I pray that you would work a miracle in, in our hearts and in our minds. That we would simply believe. We would simply believe that you could do more in us than we can do in ourselves. To believe that you, you have called us in, in spite of in spite of the darkness in our past, you could forgive us. I pray that you would just help us, Lord, because we need your help to, to simply believe, simply believe, not even, not even walk in it, just believe it, that you could help us gain victory over addiction. Help us, Lord, just to believe, just to believe that you have promised to make us your sons and daughters and to, to do amazing things in this world, Lord. Help us to just believe. Help us simply to believe as a church, Lord, that you have, you have great plans for the people that you are calling now into relationship with you, and we might get to be a chance, get to be a part of it. Lord, help us to believe it as a church. Help us to believe the the promise that you could, you could help us 
to live in victory over, over sin and darkness. Help us just to believe the promise. Help us to be true children of Abraham who just in hearing the promise that you have something better for us, we just believe it. We just believe it. Lord, we, we want nothing more than for you to look at us and say, yes, you're doing exactly what I created you to do. You're doing exactly the right thing. And we believe that that could happen if we would just, just believe. Just believe that you have something better for us, Lord. God, you are, you are so good. You are so worthy of praise. You are so right and loving, just. And so, God, we, we pray that you would help us to, to continue to walk as, as sons and daughters of Abraham, believing in all that you are and all that you could do in us, Lord. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you. May you go this week and may it be said of you that you believed in God and it was counted to you as righteousness. You are dismissed.